Good morning, everyone. Uh, let's get started right away because, you know, this is the Lenten season and we have worship at 11 o'clock here. So we want to get going. I, you know, I was just thinking about the fact that I'm cheated out of about 10 minutes of class this morning. Maybe we should just start early. But then that, you know, if anybody didn't get the word or didn't show up early, then they would just kind of come into the middle of it. Um, but I was tempted um, to start 10 minutes early. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, maybe next week. <laughs> it actually is a, it's a interesting, tough passage today that we're going to look at in Mark 11, starting at verse 12. So um, welcome if you're online today, and uh, welcome if you're here in person, either way. Whoa, uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm like, I'm hearing myself talk. Someone had me on. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so welcome. Let's pray, because this is a difficult passage, especially when we pray the Holy Spirit guide us in our time today. So let's pray. Oh, Holy Spirit, thank you that you bring us to faith in our Lord Jesus. Thank you that you open the scriptures to us for our understanding that you bring us knowledge of our Savior and, uh, and our salvation. Um, thank you for being the light that points to, to Jesus, to our Lord. Holy Spirit, fill this room, we pray, that we might have a greater awareness of the truth of your word that you would guide us in our discussion, that we would learn what you would have us learn. Guide our thoughts, guide our words, most especially make us open to your leading. We ask in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Amen. All right. So you can see on the top of your handout, uh, Mark 11, 12 to 33 is the, uh, and oh, wow, there's a whole bunch of stuff. So I'm going to just read the passage here. I'm going to actually back up to verse 11, and then we'll read the whole rest of the chapter, because next week is chapter 12. Here we go. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, 
for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. They arrived again in Jerusalem. And while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, they feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Would anyone like to take the place up here and teach today? Because this is just kind of one of those passages that, oh man. I'll tell you another tough one. I just had it this morning. I, on Tuesday mornings, I spent some time over at Celebration Lutheran School with our teaching staff and uh, have some devotion time. We were just kind of going through 1 Corinthians right now, and we were in 1 Corinthians 11. Look that up later. You don't have to look it up now, but it's even more difficult than this one, and I was glad I only had half an hour with that one. So, uh, anything, what, what jumps out most especially for you today, we're going to talk about several things, but what especially, you know, what, or, oh, okay, hands everywhere, yes, Ken, why would he kill the fig tree? That's, that's your question too, okay, everyone's question, Is that your question too? Yeah, yeah, so it, it says, it didn't have any figs because, this is verse 13, because it was not the season for figs. And and wait a second. Is it just fig it out? Yeah, I gotcha. Okay. <laughs> um, now, it also it says uh, in, in that same verse, right? Seeing the distance of fig tree and leaf, he went he went to find out if it had any fruit. He knows, doesn't he? He's God. He knows a lot of other things. He's said things to people that you know he shouldn't know. And he's so what is what's going on here? What is all this? Why would he curse a fig tree that doesn't have fruit when it's not expected to have fruit? Anyone else have a real problem with this? Yeah, uh, I can see all the hands online too. Yeah, I see you. <laughs> yeah, it's, 
Um, yeah, we're, we're going to get into this, okay? Um, that, that really kind of is the big question. Anything else? Anything easier? I can just uh, delay and delay and delay with other issues before we're done? Yeah. Twenty-two to twenty-six. What about? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, what is all this about prayer? Because if I pray, so and so gets healthy, and then they don't. Does that mean I don't have enough faith? And you know, okay, I didn't ask in Jesus' name or something. I, I don't know. Did I? Did I do it wrong? Uh, what's going on here? And by the way, in this twenty-two. Uh, and and notice that it's actually not verse 26. It's actually 22 to 25. There is no verse 26. Did you notice this? Oh, I didn't even pay attention, did you? Huh. I know you just looked at 27 and said, oh, I figured it ended with 26. Um, there's a footnote at the end of 25. Mine happens to be a U. Uh, we go down to the bottom and it says, Some manuscripts say... It ends with sins, and then verse 26, but if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your sins. Oh, uh, it's a footnote because almost certainly those manuscripts that include that are later manuscripts where someone actually inserted that, not in the original text. So it's it's a footnote because it's most likely not original. So... Uh, when they did the numbering, it was in the manuscript, and they numbered it as verse 26. But uh, if you actually look in the body of the text, this goes from verse 25 to 27. Okay, so that's, there just went two minutes of my time. But we're, you know, any other questions? Because I really want to delay as long as possible on this fruit tree. No, no, no. Um, but notice the other thing, Marge, about this verse 22 to 25, that it seems so out of context. What and what he's like, he curses this fig tree, then they notice the, the fig tree withered, and then all of a sudden he's talking about prayer. What's this about? Why does he to like break into prayer all of a sudden? Okay, so anyway, let's look at your outline, uh, on your, your handout. I, I shared with you a, an outline of Mark 11. The first two lines represent what we looked at last week. Pastor Adam was with you, I believe, and he was sharing the first part of the triumphal entry, it's often called, coming into Jerusalem. So here Jesus arrives in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Uh, verse 11, interesting, sort of anticlimactic. He comes into Jerusalem with all his fanfare. He looks around and says, okay, see you later. <laughs> he just leaves right away because it's late in the day. They're like, what? wait, what? What's that verse for? Because um, he, he observes everything. He didn't go there for no reason, but he's seen what's going on in the temple. It's late in the day, he leaves, and he comes back the next day, and there's this turning over the tables of the money changers, shooing everybody out, the buyers and sellers, and not allowing anybody to carry merchandise through the, the temple courts. And... Um, so that happens on what we might call Holy Monday, right? It's Monday of Holy Week, the day after Palm Sunday. Um, but look at this. I put in bold these two pieces about the fig tree. Right? Jesus curses the fig tree, and then, then his disciples observe, observe that 
the tree that was cursed the day before is now withered from the root, you know, dying from the root up. Um, and then the, then the other piece is about prayer and confrontation with the religious leaders. Remember several weeks ago, we talked about, this was back when we were in, um, I believe we were in Mark 6 when we talked about this, about what's sometimes called the Markin sandwich. Markin sandwich. Where Mark takes a story, it's, this is like the, the bread on either side of something in the middle. So there's a story that's broken into two pieces. And that's why I put it in bold so you can see there's the fig tree and the fig tree on either side of Jesus clearing out the commerce from the temple. What, what often happens in Mark is that he's combining two different stories. The way that he tells the story is combining and emphasizing this little bit of a sandwich where the, the, the bread pieces and the meat in the middle are sort of mutually interpreting each other. A lot of times it's actually the meat in the middle that's helping you understand the outside pieces. This is an example, I think, of even more so. Um, it, it, you do kind of understand the outside pieces because of the inside piece, but it works the other way around too. You understand the inside piece because of the, the bread on the outside. Does that make sense? So there are three pieces, what you might call A and A prime and B. B is the beef in the middle. <laughs> it's the, the meat in the middle. And the beef in the middle, the meat in the middle, is this clearing of the temple. Yes, ma'am. Oh, is Jesus angry when he clears the temple? And if so, uh huh. He, well, not yeah. He was fully man, fully God. Yep. Okay. Oh yes, yes. Oh, very, oh man, this could occupy the whole rest of our time. Thank you very much. Is God angry and his anger is sin? Okay. No, I'm I'm just kidding about that. Um, can you tell I don't really want to talk about the fig tree? No, it's just really difficult. Um, anger is not necessarily a sin. There's, uh, yeah, God gets angry, but it's a righteous anger. Anger that we normally experience is selfish anger or because we lose control. Um, it's sinful anger. Uh, but there is righteous anger. So Jesus can be fully God and express anger. That's okay. Uh, and and I think there are examples of him doing that. He also shows disappointment. Um, it, it's interesting. I I think there's some anger that's going on in Jesus. However, Mark I don't think is highlighting that piece. He's not highlighting anger. Um, I have a quote here a little bit later. I think more of what's going on here is not Jesus sort of working on a one-time or a short-term reform of the temple so much. It's like, okay, you've made this into something it's not supposed to be, so, you know, 
let's clean this up here, get our act together. Uh, I think Mark Moore is emphasizing that Jesus has shown up to close the temple. He came to close shop. Because the temple no longer has its purpose as it was intended. <laughs> now, that was a loaded, loaded statement. We need to unpack that a little bit, right? Because um, there, there are several things going on here. Part of it is that Jesus himself is the temple embodied. Because what is the temple? It is that place where people can go where God's presence is located. And because God's glory is located at the temple, then uh, you know, it's sort of restricted access. The closer you get, the fewer people can go in. So you get close to Jerusalem and, okay, yeah, anybody can be there, but then there's a court of Gentiles, which is sort of like the court of those who are Gentiles, but they believe in God or what called God-fearers, and they can come into the court of the, the Gentiles. And then there's the court of the Jews where Jewish women can go, but and, and men can go, but then you go into the court of the Jews, which is not for the women, only the men. And then inside of that is the true courtyard where, you know, only the priests can go. And then into the holy place where only some priests can go. And then the holy of holies where only one guy can go only once a year and only when their blood is shed. Right. It's like, so there's less and less access the closer you get to God's presence. That's, that's where God is at. But now Jesus is in town, right? God is showing up in the flesh, and there's no longer a need for the temple. So that part is going on here too. Now the, the temple has become obsolete because Christ himself is the temple. And then when he pours out the Holy Spirit, then the church is the temple. Like you, you all, the, the people are the temple, and where the people go, there God is. When the Holy Spirit. So there's no longer this need for the temple. So in essence, it's, it's not really an anger thing. It's just, okay, this season is done. The temple is obsolete. A new thing has come. So there's partly that. But there's also the reality that, you know, as Jesus said, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, and you've made it a den of robbers. There's dishonesty and um, and, and cheating going on among the commerce there. And then to have buying and selling anyway is not supposed to happen in the temple. So why is it happening there? It's not that the, I mean, they needed people who were coming from long distance and had to bring a sacrifice, needed to either bring their own or buy a pair of doves or pigeons or buy a lamb or whatever. And so there was some buying and selling that was going on there, not necessarily cheating people, just, you know, honest commerce. Not that that was bad. It was just in the wrong place. The temple court's not the place for that. It should be, in fact, there's uh, some historical evidence that a lot of that used to happen across the Kidron Valley on the Mount of Olives, that buying and selling stuff before the time of Jesus. But then it sort of, eked into the, the, the temple and then it became 
about money and commerce instead of what's it supposed to be about? Worship. And it wasn't worshipful anymore. And so there may be a sense of anger in that, like you've made this something it's not supposed to be. And then um, we'll kind of move on from this here in a second, but um, this, this may be the bigger issue and where, where the whole fig tree comes in on either side of the story of the cleansing of the temple, that what is going on at the time of Jesus at the temple is a show of piety with the lack of fruit of piety. Does that make sense? There's a show of piety without the fruit of it. Yep. Can I explain that? That's the idea. Yeah, I'm, that's that's what I'm getting to. That's why I said I want to kind of move on from this. But uh, so there are all kinds of things going on, you know, in the in Jesus clearing the temple. Um, historically, God's plan of salvation at that moment um, it had become things that it wasn't supposed to be. Um, there's anger. There's just moving on, that kind of thing. So what do I mean by there's there's show of piety, but not fruit of it? Um, well, that, that's kind of where I want to get at with the the Mark and Sandwich. What, why you know what is the connection between and why did Mark sort of emphasize by breaking the story of the fig tree into two pieces, one on Monday, one on Tuesday, and then this clearing of the temple in the middle. Uh, the other gospel writers don't tell it this way. Mark tells it this way. Why? Uh, and why does Jesus go to a fig tree when it's not in season expecting to find fruit there? And it curses it. Um, anybody have an orchard or grow up in an orchard or anything like that who could speak to this much better than I yeah I got a pear tree and an apple tree too um, so that's about as close as I get but um, I, I grew up on a I grew up on a property where previous owners had had a small little orchard in the back apple trees and um, some trees are every tree is different and um, as you watch in the spring, as the leaves come out, some, some just leaf more quickly than others. Um, so as I'm reading the commentaries on, on all of this, there, the, the way that it sounds as Jesus is seeing a fig tree in the distance that is in leaf, and at Passover time, which is really close to right now, so just in a few weeks we're at Passover. Are the leaves are the leaves coming out on the trees yet? Well, not here, but let's say go down to Indiana or Tennessee. Are they coming out? Oh yeah, but they're not ready to bear fruit yet. I mean, not until summer or fall. Um, but in in Israel, the those trees are around now, right, starting to show their leaves. The leaves are coming out, you know, un unfolding and opening up. And the, the more those 
leaves are open up, the more mature it looks and the more ready for fruit it looks. And it's the way that Mark tells a story sounds like that tree, that fig tree, has, has just sort of more advanced than other trees and it's sort of opened up and it looks like it might have some of the early figs. And they're apparently, and this you could look this up in Micah 7 verse 1. Micah 7, verse 1. Don't go with it now. Just, you can look it up later. Um, it actually speaks of looking to the fig tree for the early figs I crave. And there's some, some people who claim that it's, especially among locals, they like the early figs better than the ripe ones. I've never tried one that way. But apparently they're good. Um, so there's some, it's not completely unreasonable that Jesus would go to the fig tree. It's not, it's not um, that you're going to get a ripe fig at that moment, but you could get one of these early figs, especially as in full of leaf as this tree was that he's looking to. But it has no fruit on it whatsoever. It looks like it should have these early figs on it, but it has none. And the fig tree, in this instance, is a symbol for the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel looks like they're all you know, loving God and doing right things. They're full of pious works and actions, but they're really not living it. So as Isaiah says it, you, uh, you do all this work, but your hearts are far from me, right? Your, your, your lips speak it, but your hearts aren't in it. Um, that, that's the nation of Israel. It's almost like everything they're doing with the temple sacrifices and their worship and their uh, uh, wearing the prayer shawls with all the frills on it and everything else that they're doing makes it look like they're doing all the right stuff, but their hearts really aren't devoted to the Lord. You ever find this in your own life where, yeah, I'm going through the motions, but my heart's not in it? This was the whole nation. Their heart wasn't in it. Their lips proclaimed the, the praise of the Lord, but their hearts are actually far from the Lord. So the, the fig tree was a symbol for that. And that's why Mark is actually putting this in a sandwich. So the fig tree that's you know rotting from the bottom up is symbolic for what's happening in between, where you know th these people are uh, they're going through all these motions about the temple and sacrifices, and they're coming at the proper times and seasons when they're supposed to go to the temple, and they go through all that, but it's not making any bit of difference when they walk away from the temple and they go about their everyday lives. 
Does it make sense? Right. It, they're, so their life isn't showing the fruit of faith. It's just emptiness, empty faith. Questions about that? So Mark does this. Um, Mark does this all the time, where he's sandwiching these kinds of things together so that you can understand one in light of the other. You understand the fig tree in light of the temple and the temple in light of the fig tree. So um, let's see. Oh, I wanted to go to Hosea 9. This is the one place I want to go to, Hosea 9. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jamaica. <laughs> That's how I remember it. I just last night I was preparing um, something else, and I was like, "Where's Amos? Hosea, Joel, Amos." Yeah. <laughs> so, um, Hosea nine. All right. Uh, now, Hosea, you're talking about um, 6th century B.C., so 500s B.C., just before the um, destruction of the temple and uh, Jerusalem, which happened in 586 B.C. So uh, Hosea, the prophet, is condemning the, the people of Israel for their, their unfaithfulness, their rebellion, their idolatry. They chase after other gods. So look at Hosea 9, verse 10. It, the, the, Hosea is speaking the words of God here, and he's saying, When I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. What is that supposed to mean? Like there's not too many grapes in the desert. Right? It's, so you're finding it's like finding treasure in an empty field. Oh, Jesus actually speaks of that kind of language. So you're finding this, like finding grapes in a desert. Oh, what a treasure! When I saw your fathers, so he's talking about generations way past, you know, like before the Exodus. When I saw your fathers, it was like seeing the early fruit on the fig tree. Bing. But then, when they came to Baal Peor, which is part of the, um, the journey from Egypt to the Promised Land. So they're in the desert in the land of um, the uh, Edomites. When they came to Baal Peor, they consecrated themselves to that shameful idol. It's their, remember the um, golden calf thing? Yeah, they're, so they're bowing down to shameful idols. So here, God had likened them to grapes in the desert, but then 
they do this vile thing that they loved. And then go down to verse 16. Ephraim is blighted. Like blight is something that you describe like a tree that is diseased, correct? Um, Ephraim is a, is a synonym for Israel. Ephraim uh, was one of the sons of Joseph. Ephraim is blighted. Their root is withered. They yield no fruit. Even if they bear children, I will slay their cherished offspring. My God will reject them because they have not obeyed him. They will be wanderers among the nations. But here's, it's like a judgment upon Israel. Here's some of the language in there about the rotted root and uh, being fruitless and looking for early figs and not finding any. Yeah, it's like, wow. It's not like Hosea was written after Mark or something, but it was 600 years earlier. Wild. So I think this is what's going on with the fig tree. Um, it is, it's, you know, Jesus knows there's no figs on that fig tree. It's not really about him being hungry and looking for something and then being so disappointed that he doesn't find anything like, you know, curse, curse this tree. May he never bear fruit again. You know, it's, it's really a symbolic instance where Jesus is speaking judgment on the tree, but it really is judgment upon Israel. Because they've made the temple sort of like an idol. Like, well, if the temple still stands, we're good. God is pleased with us. Because in the times when God was not pleased, that's when it destroyed. But now it's been, you know, it's been even rebuilt and expanded on by Herod the Great. In the first century BC, Herod the Great, you know, made it even better, renovated the temple. It was, and it's it looking glorious. It, you know, God's, God is happy with us. This kind of became this thing. And they were going through all the motions of the temple, but not really living it. Yeah, Dennis. Um, and in uh, Hosea. Is that still a judgment of Israel today? Um, I would say yes, in a way. So the question is in verse 17 at the end of Hosea 9, when he said, you know, is, he's really speaking a judgment upon Israel. Is that still true today? Yes and no. I mean, yes, for everyone who is unbelieving, apostate, you know, not not calling the name of the Lord. But then, you know, a remnant came back after Babylonian captivity. A remnant came back. Um, from that remnant came Christ. And from Christ came the church, which is what you might call the new Israel. Uh, Paul in Galatians 6 calls the church the Israel of God. So, in that sense, and not, not to, don't think about the nation of Israel today that's over in the Middle East, right? Um, but 
the whole church, the Christian church as Israel, the new Israel. So the judgment is upon anybody who is not part of that Israel, but who is, you know, maybe Israel by name only. I don't know if I can explain it any more than that. <laughs> um, do you mean, what, what do you want more explanation about? More explanation about what I just said. Um, yes. So I think a lot of times we think of Israel, the Old Testament, is the same as Israel today. Right? So you hear this name Israel all through the Old Testament, and now there's a nation state of Israel today current state of Israel. And, and a lot of times we make the connection to go, oh, well, we have to be friends of Israel as Christians because that's the people of God. No, the nation of Israel today is Israel by name, but not the same faith as the Old Testament faith. Now, there will be people in Israel who will disagree with me on this. So they can see the video of this and they might hate me and whatever, but Israel, the Old Testament, if you think about timeline, okay, this timeline of history, Israel, the Old Testament, flows through Christ to the church. The Christian church is the continuation of Old Testament Israel. Current state of Israel is not the continuation of Old Testament Israel. The church is. That's what I mean. The state of Israel today, a nation just like the United States, a sovereign nation. But it's not equal to Israel, the Old Testament. They will contest that claim that I just made. But as Christians, we should not think of nation state of Israel today as the same as the Old Testament Israel. Some people in Israel practice Christianity, not the majority. In fact, by far the minority. Most people in Israel are what you might call secular Jews. They're, or you might say, they're Israelis and secular Israelis. And then there are those who are Jewish by heritage, but they don't practice the faith. And then there's a selection of those in Israel who observe, it, uh, observe Judaism, which is, you know, the Jewish faith, which is, I argue, is very different from the Old Testament faith. It's more like Israel, Christ, church, and then Judaism. <laughs> it's like an offshoot, you might say a heresy of the faith. That's what I mean. Yeah. Yeah, so is there some place in the Bible that explains this whole thing in a condensed, understandable way? Is what you're asking. <laughs> um, 
Not exactly, but I would encourage you, if you really want to dig into this a little bit more, read the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. And then, not just read the book of Hebrews, but there's a small little book this big. You can race up to the library afterwards. So, you know, get, be the first one to get there. Um, in the library is a small little book. It's from, it's the, people, the, the People's Commentary from CPH. It's about this thick. And there's a commentary on the book of Hebrews that is very, very understandable. And read that alongside of the book of Hebrews. And... I did that when I was in college, and it transformed my understanding of the connection between the Old Testament and New Testament. It's a plug for the library at the same time as understanding. So it's called, it's, it's called Hebrews. It's the commentary on the book of Hebrews, and it's the People's Commentary series. It's, a, it's, like a, it's almost like a, a brownish-purplish kind of a cover on it. It's about... This, this thick, okay? Uh, maybe about this tall. Yeah. I'm, I'm, now, I'm almost certain that I have a copy of it on my bookshelf, and there's one in the library. Or, I don't know, see if you can order it online or something. <laughs> anyway, if you really want to know that connection between Old Testament and New Testament, and that's, that's a really great uh, commentary series in the book of Hebrews in general, which speaks about the, all the old things, the sacrifices, the temple, and all that being obsolete. And the book of Hebrews uses that word, obsolete. Because now that Christ has come, there's no need for a temple anymore. So check this out. Uh, I want you to go to Matthew chapter 23, almost 24. So it's the very end of Matthew 23, the beginning of chapter 24. Now, I'm getting maybe a little bit ahead of myself, but I almost have to anyway because we're going to run out of time. This is, um, I make this point at the, on the last part of, with Jesus' confrontation with the religious leaders that happens in um, the last section of Mark 11. That confrontation with the religious leaders at the end of Mark 11 is actually the beginning of a continued back and forth with the religious leaders of different groups. There's the Pharisees and then the Sadducees and then the elders and the, like every, the Herodians. Everyone's got a different group that's trying to challenge Jesus. And um, so the end of Mark 11 is the beginning of that. And, and it really kind of reaches a climax when Jesus leaves the temple for the last time. He never did return back to the temple. So Mark doesn't draw this out as much as Matthew does, and that's why I wanted you to go to Matthew at the end of 23, into chapter 24. So um, Matthew 23, starting at verse 37. Jesus, this is where Jesus is in the temple. He's teaching in the temple courts. People are listening to him. He's giving all these woe to you, teachers of the law. Woe to you, teachers of the law. This is where he says, you're like whitewashed tombs. Looking all good on the outside, but inside is full of dead men's bones. Like this is 
first century equivalent of uh, like b- the biggest diss of anybody, like the biggest insult. If you had a, um, and not in the spirit of a roast, not, that's not what we're talking about, like seriously insulting somebody. So that's happening in Matthew 23. And then he says, verse 37, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Here, Jesus has come to gather his people together, and there's like, nope. Oh, how long to gather you like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings? Nope. And then this is what he says. Look, your house is left to you desolate. What does that mean? What is your house? Nope, not your bodies. The temple. And interesting that he calls it your house. Because previously, and then, you know, when in Mark, Mark 11, what he says, my house will be left to you. Right, or my, my house will be called to you, will be called a house of prayer for many nations. So he's, he calls it my house. But in Matthew, uh, by, by this time, uh, a little bit later in, the, in this interaction with the Jewish people, he calls it your house is left to you desolate. And then look at the very first verse of Mark, uh, Matthew 24. Jesus left the temple. Don't miss this. Jesus is God in the flesh. And when he left the temple, God left the temple. And it literally became true what Jesus had just said. Your house is left to you desolate. It is no longer the house of God. And then his disciples say, so they leave the temple, and there's Jerusalem of the temple, and then there's the Kidron Valley, and then the Mount of Olives. That's kind of how Jerusalem is built. It's Jerusalem, temple, Kidron Valley, Mount of Olives. So they go across the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives. They turn back, and the disciples say, Rabbi, look. Teacher, look at these beautiful buildings of the temple. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, not one stone will be left on top of another on that building. Doesn't need to. And the Romans are, you know, 40 years later, 70 AD, the Romans came in, besieged the city between 68 and 70 AD, and utterly leveled the city, including the temple. And it's never been rebuilt since. Nor does it need to be. There's no need for the temple. Jesus is the temple. And now the people of God are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The temple is obsolete. And that's what's going on in Mark 11. What the temple has become is really not what it was meant to be. A place of prayer, a place of sacrifice and redemption, a place of God's presence. It's instead become a place of commerce and um, you know, false piety and it's, it's like 
it shows the leafiness that looks like it should be fruitful, and it's not fruitful. All right. Um, in the last five to seven minutes here, uh, let me address this middle part that Marge brought up, and that is this piece of prayer. I don't want to speak to the specifics about, oh, well, if you just say to this mountain, be moved to the sea, it'll happen. I think Jesus is actually being a little bit uh, facetious is not, not the right word. He's using hyperbole, right? He's using an exaggeration. You can ask for whatever. It's, it's like anything you ask. But I, I want to address more so than the specifics. How is this connected to everything that just came before? How is this piece of prayer connected to the fig tree withering and the temple no longer being relevant? It's now obsolete. That Jesus clears it out and gets rid of all the money changers and everything else. Um, what does this have to do with the other? Um, look at the handout, page two. In Mark chapter one, Jesus went around Galilee proclaiming, the time has come, the kingdom of God is here, repent and believe the good news. That word believe is the verb form of a Greek word pistis, which means faith. So believe and faith are the same word in the Greek. Okay, And throughout the gospel, Jesus is commending people for their faith. Right? So the healing of the paralytic in Mark 2, the healing of the woman who touched Jesus' clothes in Mark 5, healing of the Syrophoenician woman's daughter who's demon-possessed. Remember, uh, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs, that, that scene, Mark 7. Um, healing of the blind a man, Bartimaeus, in Mark 10. Right before, literally, the story, right before the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Jesus is healing this blind man, Bartimaeus, and he commends them all for their faith, Correct? Oh, your faith has saved you. Your faith has healed you. Great is your faith. Um, Jesus also calls out people for their lack of faith. Do you still have no faith? Mark says to his disciples as they're on this storm in the sea, and he, they wake him up and say, Oh, you have little faith. Oh, unbelieving generation, which is opistus, right? Unfaith, <laughs> the unbelieving generation in Mark 9. And the man whose son is possessed, and he says, just believe. Well, he says, oh, well, if you can, would you do this? If I can, everything is possible for him who believes. Right? So all these things are happening through the gospel mark. And now, in this, the beginning of the red letters in this section of Mark 11, verse 22, have faith in God. Why is he talking about that right here? I think because they, the people of Israel had been putting their faith in all the wrong things. They had put their faith. Um, there's an instance in Mark 10, right? There's this rich young guy who says, oh, I've kept all the commands since my childhood. 
Remember a couple weeks ago talking about that one? No one keeps all the commands perfectly, right? But he's putting his faith in his obedience, in his righteousness. There are people who are putting their faith in the temple instead of the God of the temple. So the connection, I think, here is that Jesus is saying, have faith in God. Underline, in God. Put in bold, circle it. And just like Jesus is saying, don't have faith in the temple, not faith in the traditions, not faith in, any, in your own obedience or anything else. In your status, right? The disciples who said, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left when you come into your kingdom. All this stuff's going on. And Jesus is saying, no, not faith in those things, not faith in the temple, faith in God. And if you have faith in God, you can ask anything and you can move a mountain. So it's, I think that's what's going on, how that's connected here. Make sense? There's some other stuff written on this page. You can look at that. I'm happy to ask or answer questions after the fact, but I'm going to wrap it up now because Gene is going to yell at me otherwise. And, um, and I don't want that because I told him at 10.53, if we go past that, he's supposed to yell at me. And so, Eugene, I just I kept you from having to do that. Uh, if I was starting to get the evil eye. But no, I want you to be able to go to worship. Pastor Dan has uh, worship today and, uh, and the sermon. So blessings in worship. And have a great day in the Lord.